Today's sermon text comes from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. If you're using one of the black hardback Bibles underneath the chair around you, it can be found on page 553. May God bless the reading of his word. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would lead. This is these are your words. This is your voice. We pray that it would be evident and clear. My voice would fall to the side. Any opinions would be forgotten. So give me clarity of thought and of speech and give everyone hearing the ability to receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. want to... um, start by telling you a story this morning. It's an old story, hopefully a familiar story. And as I would put it, one of the most profound stories, impactful stories ever told. And most importantly, it's a true story. And it's a story that involves you. And it's a story that involves me. And it goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She gave some also to her husband who was with her and he ate. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God. 
that of created things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the Lord said later to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. But they did not keep God's covenant and they refused to walk according to his laws. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So he gave them into the hands of the nations. Yet God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up his wrath. Wrath. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry for their sake. He remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you. I will put my law within you. I will write it on your hearts and I will be your God and you shall be my people. You will know me from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. Therefore, the Lord gave them a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And he will save his people from their sins. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. But the light has come into the world, but man loved darkness rather than light. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be Accounted righteous. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Word said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Well, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we might be raised to the dead from the dead. We we too might walk in newness of life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. For Christ was slain and purchased for God from his blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the Devil, that serpent was thrown into the lake of fire. The death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And he saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he said, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Then he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Hence, the story concludes. I assume you you recognize most of that story as it was pieced together um, from various parts of Scripture. It's what most sum up as the story of redemption, the redemptive arc. It's what we see from cover to cover in Scripture. If we were to summarize it and put it together, it's a, a story that's commonly understood to have four major movements in it. And you may have picked up on them or may think about them now in retrospect. Creation, fall, redemption and restoration, or you could say consummation or recreation. So four major movements in that story. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's a story that we are all a part of, a story that gives us or provides us a lot of answers to life. It provides us lenses through which we can view life. It gives us a world view, as you could put it, a Christian worldview. It provides hope based on the promises of what has been done in the past and what's promised for the future. So it provides a lot of answers, but it also creates a lot of questions and many of the questions that we have I don't know about you many of the questions that it creates for me has to do with the here and now like right now where I'm living because we live right now so maybe we can see the the big picture of the movements and see how all that works from beginning to end but we we live today and we live tomorrow Lord willing and right now Today or yesterday or tomorrow is hard and messy and perplexing and joy filled and sad and so many other descriptors that you could put in there, depending on where you are at in life. For most of us, for us, most days, it's 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 really not about what the past was or what the future will be like. It's about 
what's happening right now. I know the past affects the present and I'm looking forward to the future, but I'm really focused on right now. Maybe just Sunday or Monday if it's tomorrow. That's that's where I live and that's what I want to understand the most. And if I can assume for a minute, I'm not off base in terms of where most of our questions reside in life. I'd like to introduce us all to the book of Ecclesiastes. If there was ever a book written to help us make sense, some sense at least, of life on earth, then, then this is it. This is certainly it. As one author put it very well, Ecclesiastes makes a very simple point. Life is complex. Life is messy, sometimes brutally so. But there is a straightforward way to look at the mess. And this straightforward way is found in these 12 chapters as we understand them in the context of that overall story that I just shared. In the context of all of the Bible. Same author I just quoted goes on to say the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world. It's a book in the Bible that gets under the radar of our thinking and acts like an incendiary device to explode our make-believe games and jolt us into realizing that everything is not as clean and as tidy as the let's pretend world suggests. I don't know about you, if I hadn't read Ecclesiastes and I hear that quote, I kind of want to read it. So maybe your curiosity is at least piqued. In case you weren't paying attention, we, we read the text Prior to the sermon, I know that's a little changing gears. How many people thought that uh, Tyler was coming to preach? Let's just be honest. Anybody? Yeah, there's there's some takers there. Allie, you really thought? You might want to ask your husband. <laughs> sure. All right. So uh, that's going to be a regular thing now. I may change it up a little bit, but pretty much a regular thing. And uh, that's not just so the pastors uh, can uh, listen to others fumble through hard to pronounce genealogies or something like that, or that we're unable to read the text. Just another emphasis, uh, uh, another effort to put emphasis on the centrality of the word in our gatherings and particularly in our preaching. It's it's in a sense going, here's the text. This is God's word and this is what we're diving into because I am. A flawed preacher who often gets people distracted before we get to the word. So that's a way of not doing that. Um, hopefully you have located a Bible and you have found the book of Ecclesiastes right now. As Tyler mentioned, there are Bibles underneath the chairs. If you need one, if you don't have one, our gift to you, take it, no charge. Again, as mentioned in the announcements, there's the little journal Bible, standalone, just Ecclesiastes with notes in it. They're out in the lobby. If you can discreetly make your way out, if you want one of those, feel free to go ahead and grab it, but um, hurry back. So if you can't find it, table of contents. Uh, or just open to the center of the Bible, you'll land in Psalms. Go to the right, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Okay, Lord willing, things will go as planned, and we will we twelve weeks. I think I'm doubting it now. We will be spending twelve weeks in this book, and that will lead us right up to Advent. If you are a seasoned member, I can see some of you chuckling now. You know that things rarely go as planned, but as is said. If you fail to plan, you you plan to fail. So we're at least going to have a plan that says 12 weeks and we'll see how it goes. All right. So that's where we're going. I am not going to do a lengthy introduction of of this book. 
I think we can get it along uh, the way. And I would always commend something to you, like if you have a study Bible, particularly like an ESV study Bible, that section at the beginning of every book is not the end-all, be-all, but it's always just a good introduction to go, where am I at in the Bible, what's going on in the background? But I think as this unfolds, we'll get enough of that where I don't have to spend uh, 20 minutes talking about all the contextual stuff, just because we'll have to unpack it along the way. Um, most believe that the book was written by King Solomon, King David's son. Verse 1 alludes to that. It mentions the son of David. Um, you can make an argument, and many people have, uh, that Solomon is not the author. Okay, that he didn't write it. And it's a decent argument. But honestly, I, I don't actually see. I spent a ton of time trying to figure out, is he or isn't he the author? In the end, you know what I found out? It doesn't make a ton of difference. OK, so I wasted all I won't, I won't say it wasted, but I spent all of that time to tell you that it doesn't make a ton of difference whether Solomon wrote it or not. Uh, technically, the author of the book is anonymous. We have this character that's referred to as the preacher or the teacher, if you're using the NIV. And the book reads like it starts out with a narrator talking about the preacher. But then look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. It switches to I. I, the preacher, okay, have been king. So it reads like a narrator starts it, like a, like an, there's a, there's a prologue and then the preacher picks up. And if you were to turn to the end of the book in chapter 12 and get to verse 8, it seems like the narrator picks back up, okay? So we've got, looks like a narrator, preacher talking, and then the narrator again. And honestly, again, you could make a big deal out of that and kind of run off in your interpretive direction with that. But it doesn't make a ton of difference either. But it just reads like that. But I think the best argument, the one that makes the most sense, is that Solomon wrote this. But we'll just call him what he's calling himself, the preacher. Okay, that word that's being translated there as preacher actually means one who gathers, one who collects, one who assembles. And honestly, I think calling him the preacher, we're going to call him that, but it's a bit misleading because preachers, contrary to popular opinion, are supposed to provide clarity. We explain things. We expound upon the text and say, this is what it means. If you've read Ecclesiastes, you don't think he's a preacher. You think he's a philosophy professor and he's just given free. He's tenured and he can just say whatever he wants to trip up anybody in any direction. Okay. So teacher is probably actually better. I told a few people uh, that in studying this book, I felt like I had enrolled in a doctoral level philosophy class. And I wasn't sure after I got in the class whether it was being taught by Tim Keller or Christopher Hitchens. I really can't tell. Hitchens is a well-known atheist, by the way. That's a joke. This is like Nobody laughs, so... When all else fails, say it's a joke. Um, anyone willing to right now admit I've read the book and I'm pretty clueless about what it means? Anybody in that space? All right, you you other 80 theologians, could you just meet me in the lobby and help me to understand it afterwards? Because only five of you are confused. The rest of you, the rest of you have it. So the book has perplexed a lot of Christians for a long time. And there's some radically different interpretations of it. And honestly, there are certain interpretations that I would strongly disagree with from some people saying it's a book written by a skeptic. It's not even written by a believer. And like, why is it in the Bible? And you clearly didn't read it all the way to the end. 
But there's a lot of things I'm not going to disagree with, okay? I don't plan to get any debates about nuances of certain words on this book. I, I, I am beginning this series with the same posture that I remember hearing Tom Schreiner, just really well-known theologian at Southern Seminary, I, I remember him diving into the book of Revelation and writing about it, and he said, this is what I think I know for now. And that's kind of where I'm at with Ecclesiastes. Okay, First 11 verses that you heard read earlier, four sections that we're going to utilize to help us to better understand the overall direction of uh, the book. And if this, these first 11 verses are truly an epilogue, they kind of function like that, then that means they frame, or prologue, that means they frame the book, okay? If they're an introduction to the book, then they frame the book for us. So we're a bit high level today, kind of skimming across the mountaintops and the peaks of what we're going to get uh, to dive into as we go throughout the book. So, um, first section. Let's dive in. And, and I have one to three subpoints under each section. I'll explain those subpoints in just a minute. First section, we see a scandalous thesis. A scandalous thesis. So verse one introduces the author. Then verse two, we get the author, the preacher's thesis statement. Verse two, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How's that for an opening statement of a book of the Bible? Let's get everybody depressed right out of the gate. Welcome to Scripture. If you're using the NIV, it's translated as meaningless instead of vanity, which sounds even worse. I've never tried to argue someone out of using the NIV, but it's going to be more depressing going through Ecclesiastes if you're using an NIV. So in Bible study... Repetition is that that should throw a flag up every time you see words repeated over and over. The Lord does not waste words. And if he's using one as often as he's using one in this book, then it is immensely important. And the word translated vanity is used something like 38 times in 12 chapters in this one book. And if that doesn't make it important enough, it also serves like a bookend to the entire book. So verse two here. We just read that. If you were to flip, and you can flip and just underline this, verse 8 of chapter 12, the same phrase. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's just bookending things. Basically, it's all vanity. Now we're going to talk about vanity. It's all vanity. Which obviously means it's an extremely important idea. And this is one of the many things... That makes Ecclesiastes difficult. Comes out of the gate being stubborn. The meaning of words is important throughout scripture. But the meaning of a few words and a few phrases in this book are particularly important and particularly difficult. Because those meanings determine the meaning of the book as a whole and how you approach it. This book actually creates what is known as a hermeneutical spiral. So hermeneutics, there's a big word for the day. That's just a a science of interpretation, theory, philosophy of interpretation. Okay, so uh, a spiral in hermeneutics is akin to chasing your tail. You're just running around in circles. Here's how one commentator puts it. He said in Ecclesiastes, the meaning of certain words depends on the meaning of the book as a whole. And the meaning of the book as a whole depends on the meaning of certain words. 
Hence, you just go round and round and round until you land somewhere. Vanity creates such a problem. So many nuances to that word. And I don't mean to keep picking on the NIV, but I will. I don't see meaningless as a good translation or a good way to define it. If everything is truly meaningless, then close your Bibles and go home. Because whoever the author is, his argument is meaningless and we don't need to listen to it. The original word here uh, refers concretely to a mist, a vapor, a mere breath. Okay, Concretely to that. It refers more metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive or sort of escapes you. And both nuances can certainly be reasoned as pointing to what the author is getting at, but it, it doesn't really help us to view vanity here as simply mist or as fleeting. Those things are true, but we need a little bit more to go, okay, it's vapor of vapor, all is vapor or all is fleeting. Kind of, I can get a little bit more if it's all fleeting, but I think we need a little more. With that, here's my attempt to sum up an incredibly complex word using that's being used in an incredibly significant way. And this is subpoint number one, while also being my attempt at a definition. And, and here's the explanation of all the subpoints today. They all start with life is fill in the blank. Life is fill in the blank. By the time we get done with our four sections, we're going to have seven life is statements. And it's my attempt to sort of build a case of what Ecclesiastes is getting at. And hopefully this will help us throughout the book. So four sections, seven life is statements. First one goes like this. Life is awfully indefinable. Life is awfully indefinable. Or you could say life is frustratingly inscrutable, meaning it seems impossible to understand or interpret. And that reality frustrates us. By the way, I I sit down and come up with these outlines and these points, often never thinking about the kids in the room. And I have been corrected by one of my kids that will go unnamed who tells me that my my words are too big at times, which I don't think they are. So I'm trying to get better at not using smaller words, but defining my words. So you see the point on the screen. All right. Life is awfully indefinable. That point simply means life is really hard to understand. And that's frustrating. OK, you want another big word? Try enigmatic. OK, E-N-I-G-M-A-T-I-C. That's me picking on my unnamed child. Okay. That means difficult to interpret or understand. There's a, there's a level of mystery in that word. Here's how a couple of really smart people put it that I hope will help. Stephen Wellam, professor of Southern, at Southern Seminary, says, a te- The teacher is not affirming the meaninglessness of life. Instead, he's affirming that life lived under God's providential rule in a fallen, sin-cursed world is rarely understandable to us, and hence incredibly elusive and often enigmatic. There's that word. Many have pointed out how interesting it is that Solomon, that he's attributed, that he wrote both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and they are right next to one another in the Bible, and they are both They both fall in the category of what's known as wisdom literature. To oversimplify that, it's literature that talks about how to live. 
So you've got one author writing two books. They're side by side. They're the same category. So think about it. Proverbs is full of wise advice and following that advice generally leads to a better outcome. So proverbial wisdom says this. If you ever read Proverbs, this is how it goes. It says, do this and normally this will happen. Proverbs are not promises. It says, do this and normally this will happen. So you have that in Proverbs and then you flip the page to Ecclesiastes and it's honest enough to step in and say, yeah, that's true. But there's a major glitch in the system. Do this and this normally happens, but there's a major glitch in the system. This proverbial wisdom that we have from the word exists in a fallen and broken world that is often Mysterious and indefinable. Here's how the second really smart person put it. And I'm not picking on the NIV this time. He is. He says, contrary to some interpretations of Ecclesiastes, the author isn't saying that life is meaningless. It's just problematic. It's simply unsolid, like a cloud. It's absurd at times. For those who think life can be managed by neat and tidy Proverbs guarantees, a book like Ecclesiastes is troubling. It should be, because at some point, his words, not mine, at some point, the vanity of life is going to smash you in the face. Ecclesiastes, in so many ways, tells the truth about the way life feels in a fallen world. And it provides direction for how to live in light of the way it feels to live in a fallen world. Okay? Tells the truth about it and provides direction for you. So what is the scandalous thesis being laid out at the beginning? It's that life is awfully indefinable. It's vanity. It's frustratingly inscrutable, seemingly impossible to interpret at times. We're going to get picture after picture after picture that proves that point as we go throughout this week or throughout this book. We're going to get to dive in the deep end next week. Okay, so so come back. That's section number one. We have a scandalous thesis. Next, we have a piercing question. Next section, a piercing question. As a result of everything being vanity, everything being awfully indefinable, we get a question by the preacher. Verse two. What does man? I'm sorry. Verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Anyone want to venture a guess at what his implied answer is? What is the preacher's implied answer to his question? There we go. Good. Nobody said Jesus. <laughs> Thought somebody might. Yeah. Nothing. Now, the preacher's going to unpack this with an illustration from creation, but we need to do a little more defining first. A lot of definitions needed throughout this book. Okay. We have more important words and phrases that need uh, to be defined so we can get underneath the meaning of the book. First, you have the word gain. Okay, You have the word gain. Some translations say advantage. I think that may be the New American Standard. Others have profit. I think profit is a good translation. It's a term that's kind of pulled from the business world. It has a business connotation to it. it, it, it what is left over at the end of the day? Okay, what what profit does man have at the end of the day from all his toil, all his striving? What remains? And again, the implied answer is nothing. 
which leads to subpoint number one under this and the second life is statement. This means per the author that life is finally unprofitable. It's finally unprofitable. Okay, he's going to make a stark point regarding this in chapter two, verse 18. We'll get to this next week. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. Just hate it all. Somebody else is going to get it. Again, we're going to see the illustration in a minute to unpack a little bit of what he's trying to say. But to jump ahead and sort of sum things up so maybe we're not so lost. He's basically saying nothing we do changes the fact that we labor and we toil and then we die. And the earth just keeps going on and on and on. That's to sort of jump ahead and sum sum things up. Nothing we do changes the fact that we labor, we toil, we die, and the earth keeps moving. By the way, if any at any point you start to feel depressed, just hang on, okay? We're a Christian church. Jesus is still alive. You're still saved. There's still hope. And the preacher, not this one, he, I have a point too, but this preacher has a point. So, uh, right now you might think of, he, he's, he's in the, in the words of David Gibson, he's wounding us from behind. He's just, oh God, that hurt. This book makes some painful points, but it does so to, to expose us in a good way. But you gotta stick with it. You, you gotta, you gotta go all the way to the end, okay? You might think of it this way. We, we have to, in this book, marinating in what life is like in the fall, after the fall. What is, what is a broken, messy, perplexing world like? We've got to marinate in that, but we don't forget the redemption and the recreation, the restoration, consummation part of the story. We don't forget about that, even as we're sort of marinating in what the, the, the fall portion of this world Jesus is the one that told us everything points to him. So so they're just arrows all over Ecclesiastes, all over the Old Testament. Just point to him. Just, just sort of sick, throw up flares. Jesus. So it's there. All right. One more point before the next section in this illustration. Here's the third life is statement. Life is finally unprofitable. And next life is universally applicable. Life is universally applicable. It's where we need to define and understand the phrase under the sun. Okay, under the sun. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? The easy and I think misguided interpretation here is that under the sun is simply the secular point of view. It's the unbelieving point of view. And therefore, life without God is vain and life with God is not vain. In many ways, I, that, that'd be a layup. Okay, so vain life without God, not vain life with God. So I just take God. There we go. There's the point of the book. Got it. Makes sense. And if you hold to that interpretation or read somebody does, I'm being overly, overly simplistic. Uh, but in the end, it just simply doesn't make make sense in the Bible, in, in this book or in the Bible as a whole. Um, and it's not that the book doesn't say that life is ultimately meaningless without God, or if that's not true, it's just, it's, it's just not all it says. And that does not satisfy everything the author is saying here. It doesn't satisfy what under the sun means and how it's being applied. So, 
Think about it this way. Knowing Jesus certainly alters and provides in a completely different angle of what it means to be alive and live. But the preacher here is not commenting directly on what life is like without Jesus. That's not what he's commenting on. He is simply saying what the world is like. He's just pointing at reality. That is the same for everyone, the Christian and the non-Christian. We all live under the sun, under heaven, under the sun is the realm where vanity reigns. And we all live there. Okay, we don't live now in heaven. We live under heaven, under the sun. It's another way of saying for as long as the earth lasts, this is how it's going to be. Being a Christian doesn't stop the world from being what the world is. The preacher is going to go on to tell us that work is distressing. We read a minute ago that the, the, the fruit of our labors, that somebody else gets that. He'll say the fool sometimes receives the benefits of a wise man's work. He's going to tell us that people are oppressed. He's going to basically allude to popularity being constantly in flux. He's going to say that riches destroys their owners. He's going to say that both evil and good men die and on and on and on. I hope there are a lot of believers in this room. Does anyone that would classify themselves as a believer think that those type things stop being true when you trusted in Christ? That they just cease to exist all of a sudden. Now maybe you get a different view of them and a different approach to those things. But the earth has continued to go on broken and messy and perplexing. Again, David Gibson, going to quote his book a lot. It's called Living Life Backwards. Uh, Burnett introduced us as a church to it a while back. He says, being a Christian doesn't stop this. That, that the world is broken and messy and confusing from being true. Rather, it should make us, Christians, the first to stop pretending that it isn't true. That's part of the preacher's aim. It may not make perfect sense to us yet, meaning here in the beginning of the book, but he is carefully laying the foundations for his argument. Even for believers who have uniquely experienced the, God, the, the saving grace of God, we are not exempt from the vanity of life, and we too live under the sun. Sin and all its effects on created order, that still affects us until Christ returns. Wellam, who I quoted earlier, he says, We too experience simultaneously the joys of God's good gifts, the effects of sin's curse in our lives, and the truth that we don't know at all, especially in regard to God's providential ways which are inscrutable. Whether we like it or not, this is simply a fact of life, and Ecclesiastes, more than any other book, not only reminds us of that truth, it encourages us in the midst of it. So life is universally applicable. This, this goes for all. Next section, which helps to illustrate this one, this last one. Next section, we see a difficult illustration, a difficult illustration. So verses 4 through 11 are basically an illustration that provides some backup or some proof for the implied answer from verse, uh, the, the implied answer of the question of verse 3. Okay. All right, Gibson again, the preacher sketches humankind's place on the canvas of the entire universe to show in graphic terms just how and why there is nothing to be gained. All right, so thesis, 
question with an implied answer and now an illustration to provide proof for the answer. Verse four, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains. Basically, you are born, you live, you die, things go on, it happens again. Someone else is born, they live, they die, things go on, it happens again. And the preacher is saying a lot there, but here, here's three, three points from verses 4 through 11. And to keep the theme going, here's three, three more life, life is statements. First, we see that life is reliably repetitive, reliably repetitive. So he he makes us kind of dive into the seemingly endless cycles of nature here. He he provides three proofs okay, for the endless cycle here. And by the way, just just pause real quick. We got some engineers, some scientific thinkers in here, people that are real logic. This is this is this is a poetic argument. Using nature and science, okay? Alright, a poetic argument. People love to get into the what about game. It's like what about isms. Well, he says nothing's new. What about this? What about that? What about this? And hey, no, the water levels really do change. What about this? What about that's, it's a poetic argument. So don't just check the engineering brain at the door for just a second. Alright, so. First proof, he uses cycle of the sun, okay? You humans come and go, but guess what? Sun goes up, sun goes down after you've gone. Generation after generation has passed, sun keeps doing what it does. Then he goes to the wind, brings the wind in. The wind blows, I don't know where it goes. Seems like it just comes back around again. Next thing we know, the wind's blowing again. We die, wind keeps going. Somebody else comes, there's the wind again. Third proof, water cycle. Streams run into the ocean. They don't seem to ever change. They just flow again to the same place over and over again. You come and go. That process just continues. Part of the vanity of life is this inscrutable repetitiveness. Okay, that those illustrations are real earthy. Let's make it homey. Okay? I don't know about in your household, but in my household, I do the hand washing of the dishes. Okay? Hand washing of the dishes. I wash the dishes, the dishes get put up, I turn around, I come back the next day or just the next morning, and guess what? Dishes get out, dishes are dirtied up, they're used, they go back in, I wash the dishes, put the dishes up, and we just do that cycle over and over and over again. A lot of people have lived and died, and that process has been going on. All of us will likely live and die, and that process will just keep Going over and over. Solomon is using creation here as sort of a chalkboard to make his point. But we we can look at life. We can look at life everywhere and see examples of this. And Solomon doesn't stop here. He continues to build the case. He doesn't just say or just put it out there that life is reliably repetitive, he also says that life is, or I'm saying, that life is steadily insufficient. Life is steadily insufficient. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. The author just knows you're going to say, well, this is new. And he's like, nope, 
Nope, that's happened before. You know what a human being never truly thinks or believes? You may say it, but it's, it's just not if they really thought about it. They've never said, I've seen it all. I'm full. I'm done. I've heard it. I've experienced it. Listen to it. That's it. I'm filled up. If you think you have, then you don't have Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus or whatever other versions of this that exist. You know what never happens. You never get to the end of your show or the documentary that was recommended to you or the series that was recommended to you or the movie and say, I'm done. I don't ever have to see anything again. That's it. 100% satisfied. Don't need to watch another thing in my life. You never hear a song and think, my ears have heard it all. How many of your new favorite songs that you've heard over the past several years, how many of those can you just not stand to hear anymore? I think the preacher here is making one of the most undeniable points in all of the world in verse 8. But then he decides to trip us up. He says there's nothing new under the sun. If someone says there's something new, then it already has been. So how, how do you square verses 9 and 10 with something like space travel, cars, electricity, iPhones, computers, all that stuff? None of that existed when Solomon or whomever the author was when the preacher was writing this. Well, here's what he's saying. The preacher is saying there's nothing new that will ultimately change the way things fundamentally are. There's nothing that will change the fundamental condition of the world. He means there's nothing new that we could ever discover or invent that would break the cycle and then somehow... We'll be satisfied. There is nothing new. He's saying no matter the invention or the progress or whatever, life is steadily insufficient to satisfy us. As humans, we will never have our fill in this life. It's actually the positive side of that that leads us to invent things and make progress. We're talking a little bit more about the negative side. Remember, he's trying to show us that at the end of the day, there's no gain, no profit for all your toil under the sun. There's no profit because you will never be full enough to have anything left over. We get an iPhone 13. What do we want pretty quickly after that? Is it, I don't know what's coming next. I'm just going to say 14. Or maybe the 14 is already out. We get 13. We want a 14. We get a new vehicle. Guess what we want? The next one. We renovate our house or buy our dream home. What do we do? HGTV. They tell us a year later, it's outdated. Got to update it again. Got to get something new. We buy a new wardrobe, toss, give away, sell the old one to quickly find out it's back in style. We are deceived often in the thinking that meaning and happiness and satisfaction is found in novelty. Not just in the stuff, in novelty. Something new is going to change things in my life. Something new, something novel. But what is new is not really new, according to the preacher. And what feels new will soon be old. 
As one author said, the pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. When at last you think you've made a decisive decision that will truly alter things, you will soon want to change something else. Life is steadily insufficient. And finally, last point under this section and the sixth life is statement we also see in this illustration and throughout the entire book, life is unfailingly certain. Life is unfailingly certain. And by this, I mean, everybody tune in here. Everyone's going to die. And more or less be forgotten. A generation comes. And a generation goes, according to verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, which can be translated as former people, nor will there be remembrance of latter things or people yet to be among those who come after. It is undeniably true that we live in a world where we will soon be dead. Men, don't get depressed. Okay, there's hope. The preacher in this book will not. You cannot read this book and avoid the idea of death. You, you can't read it. You can't escape. You don't. If you want to escape thinking about death, then bolt right now. Don't read Ecclesiastes. He's going to tell us that the wise dies just like the fool, even the animal. And as one dies, so does the other. In chapter 9, he sort of sums it up. You really want to jump ahead. It is the same fate for all, he says, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked and the good and the evil. Life is vain, unprofitable, because it is unfailingly certain. All will one day die. Things, thinking we won't. Thinking you will not die is like a bad game of pretend. In fact, if we ignore the fact that we're going to die, then we're going to actually miss how to live. That's a major point in this book. If we ignore, if we don't confront the fact that we will die, then we won't truly know how to live. That's something the preacher is going to help us with. As many who have studied this book, and I'll just summarize what they say, accepting death is part of the key to unlocking the preacher, uh, what the preacher is aiming at. Okay, Accepting death is part of the key to unlocking what the preacher is aiming at. That's why he's getting us to think about it here at the beginning. He's introducing us to it. And then he's just going to keep coming back around and unpacking it throughout. And this leads to our last section and our last point and the last life is underneath this section. Last section, a startling conclusion. And the conclusion is really not in the opening verses. Okay, we we aren't truly able to see the conclusion until we get to the end. I'm just trying to draw you in like 12 weeks. Come on, like let's dig in for 12 weeks here. And I'm going to be honest, I have. I was talking to another pastor that is getting ready to go through Ecclesiastes, and we both affirm that I think we've read more on this book than we have on any other book of the Bible. Because you really, you really can't figure it out until you get to the end and you figure out this spiral you're going through. And even when you do, it's like, did it click? Did I, did I fully get it? Just praying the Lord causes it to click for all of us. But the the startling conclusion lies in the last life is statement that I have here. By the end of the book, I hope we learned a tremendous amount about a lot of things. Um, 
how to live in this world. I think that's preachers aiming at that. He wants us to know how to live in a messy and broken world. It's a big goal. Chapter 12 makes clear about this. Like you want to, you really kind of want to get a filter for the whole book. Chapter 12 makes clear that these are the words of the wise. And he says these are like goads, okay? Goads like a, a stick, okay, that you would use to guide an animal along the right path. And he says the, these words are like goads. They're like, they're like fixed nails. You can hang your life on them. They're sturdy enough to hang your life on them. This book exists in part to help us to know what, how to live what I would call the good life in the midst of a messy world. If you want to know how to live the good life, in the midst of a messy world than Ecclesiastes is for you. One author said, the great Hebrew philosopher calls us to joy, but a, but a joy that thinks. A joy that does not run from the hard questions and the hard situations and the hard circumstances. So here's the last life is statement. By the time we get to the end, I hope our perspective on life is correctly calibrated. And I hope we know that life is profoundly enjoyable. Profoundly enjoyable. The preacher's route to make this point is not an easy one. He's not gentle, as some commentators have said over and over again. Again, he wounds us. He he punctures. He penetrates the illusions that we carry around in life, the misconceptions. But it's through this sort of wounding process that we're able to find joy. He is desirous of us finding joy. I'll give you a little homework, challenge you just a bit that uh, you can read ahead. There, there are several of the so-called carpe diem text in Ecclesiastes. Those texts that say, seize the moment. Okay, just go do this. You know, it's all vain, so run out and have a good time. Okay. But what's interesting, by the way, that's not 100% what it says, so don't, don't do that. But what's interesting is how each of those comes on the heels of the preacher undermining our illusions, our misconceptions about life. He, he sort of aims at, like, I'm going to puncture through that illusion, that misconception that you have, and then you got this carpe diem text. I'll give you one of them. I want to see if you can go find the others. And if you're panicking, there's no homework or I mean no test or anything like that no pop quiz I'm not allowed to do that so but I'm just encourage you go see if you can find them uh, chapter two here's the one I'll give you so he goes after the vanity of wisdom and toil along with some other things but then when he gets to verse 24 he says this there is nothing better for a person than, he, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil I'm like hang on you just you just rip toil apart you just rip wisdom apart, and that's what you're telling me. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, for apart from God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? So much to unpack there in the coming weeks, but I love the summation of one pastor. He says, under the sun, vanity is God's scepter. For those who fear Him, He gives the gift of being able to actually enjoy this great big marching band of futility. There is a path to joy in this book, but it's not an easy path. It's not a path that ignores the pain of life, but there's a path nonetheless. 
And it comes through a pretty difficult journey. It comes through an understanding, a right understanding of several things that the preacher is going to hit on over and over. It comes through an understanding that the world is broken. You have to understand that. If that doesn't, if that doesn't click for you, none of the rest of this makes sense. It comes through an understanding that we are finite creatures and we are not in control. You have to understand we're finite and not in control. And it comes through an understanding on the other side that God is utterly sovereign and in control. Finite, not in control, God sovereign, in control. And it comes to an understanding that this life was not designed to give us ultimate satisfaction. Through this, God gives the gift of enjoyment, even in the vanity. God, through the preacher, wants us to to stop trying to squeeze ultimate meaning out of things that won't deliver and just see them for what they are. Gifts from his hand that can be enjoyed just as they are. Here's the most important point where I'll leave you for today before we observe this meal. There's a key that unlocks all of this. Okay, There's a key that unlocks all of this. You call it an interpretive key for the book and it exists at the very end. And you may flip there and just underline it. Chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Basically summing it up. What's the end of the matter? Okay. Preacher or narrator. He says this. The end of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. How do we ultimately and finally unlock all of this? Everything the preacher is talking about. Fear God, follow God, and know that you'll be able to stand before God. Fear God, follow God, and know that you'll be able to stand before God. Now, let's put on our, our hats that we get by living on this side of the cross. What's the only true way to fear God and to follow God And to know that you can stand before God. What does that come through? It comes through faith in whom? Okay. You didn't say Jesus earlier when it was the wrong answer. But it is Jesus this time. So let's let's try it again. It comes through faith in Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, this book is throwing up flares. Wanting us to look at Christ. I don't know about you, you. You hear that language about there's nothing new under the sun. And then I read some of those texts earlier that said he's making all things new. And in him we are a new creation where there is something that is truly new now. So we we get to chase that down. You just start to see these arrows pointing to Christ. This book clues us to start looking for Jesus. But the end of the matter is this. The key to unlocking what we're going to call the good life in a messy world. The life that... A life where we can find joy in this awfully indefinable, finally unprofitable, universally acceptable, reliably repetitive, applicable, sorry, universally applicable, reliably repetitive, steadily insufficient and unfailingly certain world. The key to finding the good life in the midst of that type of world is to fear and to follow God through Jesus Christ. The only path. To that is through Him. 
If you already know him, then um, th- this 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 book is part of your sanctification to help with your perspective and what it means to live in this world. So for the believer, let's redefine and pursue what the good life looks like. If you don't know Jesus, well, you've been introduced to him and we want you to come to know him. We want you to know where joy is found. We want you to have an explanation of why life is the way it is. And we want you to know that there, there is a life that is profoundly enjoyable in and through Jesus Christ. So, I hope you all come back next week. Because the preacher is going to do his best to destroy, pierce our misconceptions about wisdom, about pleasure, and about work. Anybody care about any of those? Wisdom, pleasure, work? So, next week. For now. We have the distinct privilege of observing this meal known as the Lord's Supper. So the preacher, through Ecclesiastes, just sort of sucks us into the reality of living in a fallen world. And he's reminding us we're all going to die. Okay, we're all going to die. This meal allows us to look back and remember that because of Jesus Christ, as I said a minute ago, all things are being made new and we will ultimately live. Okay. So we get we get sucked into reality of a fallen world and the fact that we're going to die. This meal says you're a new creation and you're going to live. So let me invite up those who will be serving today. And um, as the elements go around today, I just want to remind everyone or instruct everyone this. What we're about to do is reserved for those who have put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ For their eternal salvation. They have acknowledged that before God they have rebelled against him. They were created by him and quickly rebelled against him and said, no, I'm going to do it my own way. And then realized that way is death. And they said, Christ is the only way I want to get back to God. Okay, they've recognized that this meal is a reminder of what Jesus did to reconcile us to our father. So if that doesn't describe you, we are grateful that you're here. We hope you feel welcome. We hope that you will come back. If you have any questions, we would love to talk with you. But please let these elements pass and just observe a people who have been purchased at a high price. Believers, let's allow this time to just remind us of what it took to overcome the curse of that exists in this world, to, to overcome sin. It took the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. So just reflect on that. And then to reflect on the fact that through what he did, there is there's joy, profound joy to be found in this inscrutable world. Okay? So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to distribute the elements, and then I'll lead us to protect. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful now as we conclude our Time in looking at your word, we are grateful. We're grateful for this meal that you have given us. So, Father, remind us now that as we live and breathe and go about life in a messy, fallen, perplexing, vain world, we are new creations in you. And we will ultimately live. So, remind us of that now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.